This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm political reporter Jonathan Swan. It's Thursday, the 16th of December, 2021. Hang on, are we talking Emmy Award winning political reporter, famous maker of facial expressions while interviewing then President Donald Trump and fruit of Dr. Norman Swan's loins, Jonathan Swan? That's a bit personal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that last bit was a bit bit much. Yeah, that's me. I speak the truth. He's walked in the studio. We thought we might as well just include him. No, we have got you on for a especially important reason, Jonathan, not just because uh, it's super fun to maybe get you to spill all your dad's secrets here to our audience, but the US has, well, it's passed a pretty bleak COVID milestone this week. You've just come back from the US and we're really keen to get your insights on the political landscape there and how it's interacted with this pandemic. Well, I'm Grateful to be here. We'll come back to you later, Jonathan. We're going to talk about some stuff that's going on in Australia at the moment, and then we'll come back to the political story in the United States. Yeah, I mean, even though the case numbers in the States are really, really high, we're dealing with talk of numbers, at least in Australia, that are completely outside of the realm of anything we've dealt with here before. Yesterday, New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard said that there was modelling from the University of New South Wales that shows that the state could have 25,000 new COVID cases per day by the end of January. Norman, I didn't even know there were that many people in New South Wales, honestly. It, it's a really scary number. To give, to put it into perspective, um, with Omicron growing fast um, and taking over from Delta in other parts of the world, just look at Denmark. They're you know, approaching 10,000 cases a day, and that's in a national population of 5.8 million. So that's not too far off metropolitan Sydney or metro, greater metropolitan Melbourne. You can get to that that number. I mean, when you've got 5.8 million people, when we've got 25 million people in Australia who are effectively vulnerable to Omicron because of vaccine evasion um, and immunity evasion, then it's like the pandemic all over again, except that it's a different, probably a different nature of a virus. Okay, so New South Wales is very highly vaccinated, but even at those numbers, even if a really tiny proportion of those people are getting severe enough COVID that they need to go into hospital or they're at risk of dying, that could scale up to pretty big strains on our medical system pretty quickly. And that's the key. I mean, in Denmark, the hospitalizations have remained quite low, but they are upticking. And as you say, even if you've got a decoupling where it's not tightly following the epidemic, the steep epidemic curve, it doesn't have to go up that much. If you look at South Africa, where they're ahead of us, unfortunately for them, but they're ahead of us in this, they say that hospitalizations, people going into hospital are not staying there as long. So they're, they're staying for about half as long as they did with Delta. Uh, not as many people are progressing to um, intensive care. And remember, the new situation is that we've got these antivirals. So we've got two antivirals potentially. Merck and Pfizer. Merck and Pfizer, so Paxlovid and uh, Molnupiravir. Some people say they should be used in combination, although there hasn't been a trial of that. And then there's the antibody medications as well. And there's, there's a bit of an open question as to whether the, the antibody medications will work on Omicron, although some people say that they will. So if you get into hospital, there's now much more than can be done. Although, and this is a big although, the effectiveness of these antivirals is such that you've got to have it early on. So in other words, when you're at the beginning of your symptoms, that's when you need to be treated with it. And the question is, who gets them? Because we want to get a limited supply. Is it the elderly and the frail? Or is it younger people? Because people can die of this. And um, so there are a lot of moving parts in this moving forward, um, where the hospitalizations could be mitigated by treatment if it's done early enough. 
Right, so we've got vaccines protecting us at the front end and then maybe these antivirals and other treatments sort of helping us out if you catch it. But in the midst of this, the other thing that happened yesterday was at least in New South Wales, they're starting to let off the brakes. They're relaxing the the mask mandates and other restrictions on unvaccinated people. They've relaxed their definition of a close contact. I saw Brendan Crabb from the Burnett Institute yesterday tweeting, we're built for Delta, but we're dealing with Omicron now. Yes. And so the science would say that you um, you just need to be careful here. And what pretty much all the experts have been saying now for some time is that vaccination will not be enough to control this pandemic, at least until things settle down over the next year or two. And you're going to have to have other measures. So New South Wales opening up a bit more than it has. It's not opened up completely in terms of restrictions. There's still some mask wearing and public transport and so on. But the fact that you're you're mixing unvaccinated with vaccinated and that you are changing the way you isolate people who have who are close contacts may um, increase the spread of the virus. In fact, it will increase the spread of the virus. In fact, they've virtually acknowledged that. And I think that what they're doing is saying, which is what Boris Johnson was saying last year, and to some extent, he's still got people within the Conservative Party in Britain saying, let it rip. At the moment, letting Omicron rip until we really know how severe it is, is a bit risky. And some people are saying we should just wait another couple of weeks before you let it rip because we're not absolutely sure how that's going to go. So one of the big questions that we were asking over the last few weeks is just how effective our current vaccines are going to be against Omicron. And there is more information about that starting to come to light. A group of researchers, including Deborah Cromer from the Kirby Institute in New South Wales, has done a review of the evidence about what they know about how vaccines work. They've got some modelling that they've been doing over a period of time. They're actually much more optimistic about the waning and the effectiveness. And so they're saying that the efficacy for Omicron could go down to about 40% against symptomatic, which is a bit above where the current estimates are, and 80% against severe disease, which is great news if they're right. And a booster dose takes you right back up to nearly 90% against symptomatic and nearly 100% against severe. So if that's the case and they're right, we're in pretty good shape if people get their boosters. The key question now is when to get the boosters. Britain, three months. Here we're still at five months. We haven't got time to sit around. The whole thing about this virus is, uh, to quote the World Health Organisation, is that you get in fast and you get in early. Even so, that's pretty reassuring. When we were worried a few weeks ago that perhaps they wouldn't work at all. Yep. Actually, I don't think we didn't think they were going to work at all, but they, we were worried. Yeah, it was only ever partial escape. So let us now talk about the US. And Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today because one of the things that Australia likes to do, <laughs> liked to do before the pandemic was kind of compare itself to our big cousins over there in America. But our experiences of the pandemic have been so different and the political landscape seems to really have set the tone for that. In the US, very early on, the pandemic became heavily politicised, almost every element of it. You had public health figures becoming lightning rods, not just for criticism, but you now have Anthony Fauci, you know, the top infectious disease expert in the US government, He is being used in fundraising emails from Republicans. That's how despised he is on the right. People literally put him in fundraising emails. You know, people describe him as demonic. 
uh, and these are like members of Congress. It's very hard to explain to an Australian audience how vicious the politics of COVID have gotten in the US. Masks uh, became uh, a very polarizing issue early on. And of course, the vaccine is now, even though you know, it was a vaccine that was developed under President Trump. I mean, he, he, President Trump actually, to his credit, really invested very heavily uh, early on to get the vaccines, unproven vaccines, put a ton of money into it. But instead of sort of claiming that accomplishment and leaning into it and, and you know, talking about it and revving up people to get vaccinated, him and his, he and his supporters, mostly his supporters, he's sort of been quiet, but have really spent most of their energy pushing back on vaccine mandates um, and, and, you know, raising, I guess, doubts about the efficacy of the vaccine. So is this all about personal freedom? And what's what's going on here? What's the what's the driver for that? Many Republicans look at Australia, for example. It's funny. Australia has become part of the conversation in the US, part of the political conversation. In conservative circles, uh, there are videos of th- that circulate. You know, there's there was one that went completely viral of this woman. I don't know the context of it, but she was sort of on her veranda. Oh, this was at Howard Springs. Right. Guy was talking to her and she said, all right, if I cross this line, I get fine, whatever. But basically, there's a the image of Australia in conservative right-wing circles is of this authoritarian hellhole that's become almost techno surveillance state. And you have, you know, <laughs> some of Trump's really prominent media allies basically saying that, you know, we've lost Australia, Australia's gone. Um, <laughs> and, you know, d- sort of mourning the, the, the death of Australia as a free society. When you look at the protests here, and they're sort of being typified as QAnon type, you know, meme type protests, you know, following the pattern in the United States. But when you look at the, the protests closely, it's actually a very mixed group of people in Australia. Yeah. So there's some who follow QAnon in the United States, but there are some who are not who are fully vaxxed. They're just angry people who feel their personal freedom has been encroached. What's the mix? I think it's very lazy to s- sort of paint the QAnon brush across all of it. I mean, I think that's a very small element of the anger and the resistance to mandates in the US. America has a very different culture than Australia. There wouldn't be the toleration for a lot of the stuff that Australians put up with, you know, allowing the government, for, you know, the government forcing you to download a certain app and then checking into Like, that is very anathema, you know, in the US. And it's funny, even just having been in the US for seven years and absorbing the political culture there, I find it, I don't like having a government app on my phone, frankly, uh, at all. It's not just the QAnon types, actually. It's it's much broader than that. I had mentioned at the top that there was a bleak milestone that the US had just passed. I don't think I actually said what it was. 800,000 recorded deaths, uh, hugely out of proportion to its population on the global scale, although we do know that many countries are grossly underreporting COVID deaths as well. Jonathan, what do you think 2022 looks like in the pandemic in the States? What I'll tell you about the politics of it, Biden set very, very high expectations during the 2020 campaign. It's part of the problem he's got right now. He basically said there's this guy, Donald Trump, who's totally reckless and incompetent, and all we need is strong adult leadership and we can get this virus under control. That was his campaign message. And then he takes over, they pass a huge bill, $1.9 trillion bill with a lot of you know COVID support funding and the vaccines are online, everything's rolling out. And then he gives this 
almost victory declaration speech on Independence Day, where he says, you know, it's Independence Day and we're also declaring independence from the virus. That was the, mm. the in the headline of the speech. You can just chart, you can just look at his approval rating and draw a line, a vertical line in about mid-July and just watch it precipitously fall across every measure, not just overall approval, every single measure, including his handling of the virus. He is now at a point where his approval rating is around near where Donald Trump's was during his presidency, which is the lowest approval rating for an American president, around the lowest, with the exception of Donald Trump, since Harry Truman. It's not good. And what is now taking effect, largely, I think, because of COVID, hanging around and people feeling this sense of malaise and it's not what he promised us, supply chains are still broken, inflation is really ramping up and is you know the White House said it was going to be very brief and transitory was the word they used. It turns out not so much. All of this stuff is combining to create the best political environment for Republicans in a decade. If the current political environment remains in place effectively, it doesn't there's no huge event or events that change it, it is going to be a catastrophic midterm elections for Democrats. And does that mean the, the the lane is open for Trump to come back into 2024? 100% the lane is open. Um, he, at the moment anyway, is it's not just forget his public statements. From my own reporting, he's putting in place all the elements that you would put in place if you were running for president. He is building the political structure. He is doing the, the work that you would do if you were going to run for president again. The other thing he's doing, and I know this is a bit off topic, but it's it's important for people to be aware of, he, he's doing all the normal things you would do as a candidate, you know, fundraising packs and political teams in place and polling and all the rest of it. Forget that. He's also trying to put in place officials at the state level who go along with his vision of overturning the 2020 election. So what you could conceivably have is not just Donald Trump running in 2024, but a set of public officials in place in key swing states who would potentially negate the election results. Politically, I can't imagine a country right now that's structured in a way to make it more difficult to do collective action. You have the polarization of American politics is very well documented but just the information space. You know, the White House wheels out Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci on all the networks and whatever. Half the country just doesn't listen to him. There's a huge information communication problem. They're trying to do it. You know, they've basically acknowledged that and they're trying to go through church networks, local networks, things like that. But you really do have a decoupling of half the country. It's not really half the population, but it's it's many of the states. And some of the poorest states, the most vulnerable ones. For sure. It's not just that they consume different media, which has been true for a while. It's that their social networks are becoming more and more hived off. Conservatives now are building their own social networks. And they're also trying to make sure that the back end, the cloud side of it, is run by conservatives so that they can't be kicked off these platforms like Trump was deplatformed from a lot of this stuff. So they're basically trying to build a world and an infrastructure that's completely separate 
So that's what I mean when I say decoupling. It's an economic decoupling to some extent too. It's a social decoupling. People are moving to different areas and states to be with like-minded people politically. And And it's an informational decoupling. To me, that's the biggest problem when you talk about public health communication and trying to deal with a pandemic. You really need to start with that premise because Dr. Fauci can go on Fox. He go. He still. You know. He stopped recently because they compared one of them hosts compared him to Joseph Mengele, the, the Nazi doctor. So right. I think he he had a little hiatus from Fox after that. But the point is, even when he was going on Fox, it was useless because the audience really doesn't listen to him. So let that be a lesson to us. We'll be back tomorrow. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, go to abc.net.au/coronacast, and we'll see you then. See you then.